0: On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Kim Nossel, a professor emeritus in political studies at Queen's University and one of Canada's leading foreign and defense policy scholars. He's also the author of the new book, Canada Alone, Navigating the Post-American World, which explores a scenario in which the United States devolves into American-first isolationism and is no longer a reliable ally to Canada and others. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including its alarming scenario in which Canada is, as he puts it, quote, for the first time in its modern history, alone in the world. Kim, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues and congratulations on the book. Thanks very much, Joan. It's great to be here. A key premise of your book is that Canada's foreign and defense policies were, as you put it, designed for a world in which the United States plays a leadership role in shaping a particular kind of world order. Let's start there. When did this assumption start to manifest itself in Canadian policy, and how has it influenced it
2: well i I think that that we have to go all the way back to the 1940s uh, and the end of the second World War and Canada's role in the shaping of that particular order, although it must be immediately be said that the order that we're talking about is in fact several orders um uh but the one thing that they have in common is that uh these orders were all led by the United States, uh, firstly. And secondly, they always involve the West uh as this group of fifty some odd uh countries joined geostrategically with the United States. And what we see is essentially a uh a, a progressive movement from the 1940s through the Cold War era in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then the transformation uh, of the order with the emergence of the United States as the the sort of the lone superpower. Um, And so that really up until the teens, we have a a fairly unbroken uh, record of American dominance, American leadership, uh, and uh, as it is frequently referred to, sort of an American-led world
1: order. We'll get into how you think that world is changing in a minute, but if one accepts the premise that Canada needs to reinvest in its defense, diplomacy, and foreign policy capacities in light of this evolving order how do you persuade Canadians after decades of being socialized that we don't need to concern ourselves with these types of questions? And
2: therein lies the the significant difficulty uh, for uh, Canadian leaders uh, and indeed for Canadians themselves. Uh, During that period of American dominance and leadership, Canadians were extraordinarily lucky in the sense that we were able to uh, uh avoid the necessity of confronting the nastiness of world politics because uh, uh not only we were we protected by two oceans uh and a an inhospitable uh area to our north um, but also of course the americans to our south and so we very much got into the habit uh of not having to worry about international politics uh, now we've got a radically different situation, but it's not clear to me that Canadians, uh, are, have been able to, in a sense, rethink our position in the world because it hasn't yet, uh, hit us, uh, in, to, to put it bluntly. And because it hasn't hit us, uh, as Canadians, it also hasn't hit the people that we send, uh, to, uh, to Ottawa to govern us, uh, and, And so that that our governors, in a sense, look like us. They think like we do uh, uh, as far as this is concerned. And so from that point of view, there's a a real problem. We really have to be hit and hit hard um, the way we were, for example, uh, during the summer of 1914, or the way that we were hit on Labor Day weekend in 1939, to all of a sudden, in a sense, wake up to the
1: changing geostrategic order. Let's turn to that evolving order now. A key premise in the book is that the United States sits on something of a knife's edge between being a responsible player in a rules-based order and an unreliable and even destructive global actor. What's your key argument here, Kim? How does the 2024 presidential election, in your mind, have the potential to fundamentally reshape America's role in the world?
2: The knife edge you refer to is one that essentially only emerged in 2016 with the election of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Up to that point, uh, American presidents, both Republican and Democrat, were essentially united in their view of the world as something that uh, should be led by the United States. Uh, We've returned to that uh, in 2021 with the election of Joe Biden. Uh, and so that the knife edge is essentially whether or not uh, uh, the Republicans, either under Mr. Trump, uh their leading nominee at present, or uh another Republican, uh should win the twenty twenty four election. And in that in that sense, uh the the knife will slip one way rather than the other. Uh, And it is uh, the argument of the book is essentially, if you look hard at today's Republican Party, then there is no way that if a Republican is elected president in 2024, uh, that uh, we are going to get the kind of administration in Washington that we got between 2017 and 2021, the, the Trump years.
1: Let me ask you to elaborate on that insight. How would you describe the foreign and defense policy assumptions of what one might describe as the new Republican Party?
2: Uh, absolutely. And the new Republican Party is, is no longer uh, the Republican Party that we all grew up with uh, prior to 2016. Uh, this is a party that is uh, anti-constitutionalist, Uh, it's authoritarian, Uh, uh, it is essentially racist, unfortunately, uh, in domestic politics. And in foreign policy, uh, it is isolationist. Uh, It does not think uh, that uh, uh, the United States should be in the role of leader uh, in uh, the world. Uh, It is a, a... a party that essentially looks at um, the possibility of always winning uh, in, in conflicts with both friends uh, and enemies. Uh, and so from that point of view, it's it's fundamentally unlike uh, the, the party in the past. We can see perhaps the, the best indication of this is the way in which the Republican Party views uh, the struggle in Ukraine, uh, the way that it looks at Um, uh, the Europeans, the way that it looks at other, uh, friends and allies, uh, because essentially today's Republican Party very much embraces the kind of the Trump view, uh, of the world, which is essentially that there is, uh, the United States, uh, on the one hand and everyone else on the others. On the other hand, uh, notions of friendship, Of uh, alliancemanship simply
1: don't exist in that particular worldview. Setting aside Trump for a minute, how would you respond to the American argument that it has assumed disproportionate responsibility, not merely in terms of public expenditures, but also to the extent that it has at times subordinated its national interests in favor of the global system for decades, and that in a world of growing global convergence in terms of economics and defense? it's no longer prepared to bear that burden anymore. Why is that position wrong in your mind?
2: Well, let, let's put it this way. I think we've got to, to pull apart some of those assertions. Uh, firstly, uh, has the United States borne the, the, the lion's share uh, of the costs over the years? Absolutely. Uh, and that, though, has always worked in American interests. And so the argument that, well, we bear the lion's share, but it's not in our interest to do so, that we've subordinated our our uh, national interests in order to lead the world, that just simply uh, doesn't reflect reality. The reality has always been, yes, the United States has borne substantial costs. Uh, uh, everyone else uh, is is a free rider, relatively speaking, but that's always been in American interests. Uh, the, the world is shaped, uh, and we call it the American world because it's shaped to serve American interests. But one of the things that the United States, under both Republicans and Democrats, um, in uh, the last 75 years or so, have always worked on is the assumption that American leadership is not only good for the United States, always good for the United States, but it's also good for American friends and allies, uh, and in particular, good for uh, the countries of the West. Uh, it's quite clear, however, that Americans, American taxpayers, American citizens, uh, are no longer happy with that arrangement. And 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 so from that perspective, you're quite right to point out that Americans have become increasingly tired uh, of uh, uh, making those those kinds of commitments. So from that point of view, uh, the uh, uh, the concern about the transformation of the American world starts essentially with uh, uh, American
1: taxpayers, American citizens. Returning to Trump and who you call the, quote, Trumpists. What are their foreign and defense policy positions that concern you the most? How would a new Trump administration converge or diverge from the last one in terms of its geopolitical poise?
2: Well, let, let's let's begin with Mr. Trump himself, because uh, if he returns to power, then uh, American foreign policy is going to become highly personalized uh, because Mr. Trump has. As most observers are looking at it, at least say that this is going to be a, uh, an administration of vengeance. Uh, in other words, taking it out on those who Mr. Trump thinks have, uh, dissed him or dissed America. Uh, and so that my concern as a Canadian, uh, is that, uh, the Canadian, uh, the Canadian government, uh, is one that is absolutely in. Uh, Mr. Trump's, uh, uh Mr. Trump's crosshairs, as it were. Uh, and so that, that I would be concerned about, uh, just simply, uh, uh, being in the, in the way and, uh, as a target. I mean, keep in mind that even after he ceased to be president, uh, uh, Mr. Trump has an exceedingly negative view of Canada. Um, during the, the truckers, uh, convoy protests in Ottawa, for example, he described Canadians as left wing fascists. I mean, uh, to, to, to have the president of the United States or to have someone return to be the president of the United States with such a view of the northern neighbor, not good for us. The second problem, uh, that we're going to have to face with both Mr. Trump uh, and a uh, uh, any other uh, Republican candidate is that of protectionism. Uh, keep in mind that uh, the the Republican Party has now become far more protectionist than the Democratic Party. It used to be during the the uh, uh, Cold War and post Cold War eras uh, that of the two parties in the United States, the Democrats were always more protectionist. Uh, Than the Republicans. Um, uh, But now we see a situation where both parties are protectionist, uh, the Republicans particularly so. Uh, And if Mr. Trump uh, is the president, uh, then there's going to be uh, even greater protectionism. But as Canadians, we have to worry uh, about the return of protectionism without the leavening elements. Uh, that uh, uh, that American leadership provide. Keep in mind that that uh, Mr. Biden's administration is is uh, is very protectionist. Uh, they kept in place a number of Trump's protections, but on the other hand, the Biden administration is is one that actually cares about America's friends and allies, uh, and thus it always seeks to. Uh, mitigate the worst impacts uh, of of American protectionist uh, measures. If we get um, uh, if we get a Republican administration, what we're going to get is protectionism without any mitigation, and that I I think is one of the the big
1: concerns. I, I would just say in parentheses, whatever one thinks of the first Trump administration, there was a degree of professionalism represented in parts of his initial cabinet, and even some of the advisors around him, I think it's fair to say that a reelected President Trump would not have that same degree of at least early stage professionalization, which, as you say, could lead it in all of these various alarming directions it's impossible to make the case that American politics isn't something of a mess. I certainly agree with that observation. But notwithstanding its politics, the country still has tremendous advantages, uh, specifically with regards to its economy. Not only is the U.S. economy still dominant in key areas, its relative performance on innovation, productivity, and GDP per capita has pulled it away from most of its peers, even in, in, in the past several years. Um As long as America maintains its economic advantage, how much of that will offset the downside risks of its politics? In other words, Kim, what's the case that we ought to assume that America's political dysfunction will ultimately undermine its economic strengths?
2: The economic dysfunction, um, sorry, the political dysfunction uh, is likely to have an impact on its uh, economic capacity. Only in the sense that uh, the uh, foreign policy of the United States may well draw the Americans very much into uh, uh, great power conflict, and that may have a huge impact. The, the difficulty, I think, with uh, the argument that uh, the American economy is is uh, is powerful, uh, the United States. Uh, uh its cultural dominance will remain uh, uh, unaffected uh, absolutely these uh, you know the united states isn't going to go into uh, any kind of terminal decline however the difficulty that we have to face uh as as canadians uh is that we are going to be dealing with a an administration uh that fundamentally is going to be far less competent uh, than the one that is in power right now. And its capacity to deal with uh, the the world out there um is just simply not going to be of the kind that is going to underpin uh, uh, its
1: various strengths. Notwithstanding American political polarization, One increasing source of political consensus is a need for a more hawkish approach vis-a-vis China than we've seen for the past few decades. As I understand it from the book, Kim, you're a bit skeptical about Canada following the United States in the direction of a more antagonistic relationship with China. Let me put it to you. How should Canada think about its relationship with China? What needs to change based on what we've learned in the past few years?
2: Well, one of the things that we have learned in the past few years is that Our approach to China uh, since the early 1970s uh, has been one of a a certain emotionalism. Uh, We have tended to uh, privilege uh, an attempt to uh, improve relations with China, regardless of what the Chinese are actually doing. Um, And so that where we need to change, it seems to me, is that we've got to become far more realistic about what kind of country China is, um uh what kinds of threats uh the People's Republic of China pose, not only to Canada as a country, but uh to uh, the, the the larger global order. And in that sense we need uh to to stop being emotional uh about China uh and much more uh, uh eyes wide open as our, our foreign minister Melanie Jolie uh put it uh last November uh, and in that sense, it seems to me that we have learned something um although I think that that there are those in Canada um who would prefer that we be even more hawkish uh, than uh, um, than that but in that sense we're we're in step much more in step uh with the United States now than than we have been uh, in in the past when it comes to China. Um, but in the case of a Republic administ- uh, Republican administration, uh, the difficulty would be that, that uh, Republicans would want us to be far more hawkish uh, than uh, we are right now or have been in the past.
1: I wanna take up your observations earlier in the conversation, Kim, about the disconnect between the evolving geopolitical context and the underlying assumptions, not just of Canadians themselves, but even our legislators. Uh, one of the limits, it seems to me, to a reinvigorated foreign defense policy is that so many in Ottawa's political class seem more interested in provincial and local issues than they do federal powers. What can be done to overcome what you and two co-authors recently called in the Globe and Mail, quote, Canada's purely performative Foreign policy.
2: Well, this is this is a uh, a criticism uh, that uh, that Canadian governments have uh, been subjected to for for far longer than just simply uh, the Trudeau government. Although uh, Mr. Trudeau's um, uh, foreign policy has been uh, even more performative. Uh, than the, those of uh, the Harper government before him, or the Martin government before that. Um, the, the the real concern here is that uh, Canadian foreign policy has developed this tendency uh, to be focused much more on, in a sense, what impact it's going to have on Canadians and on Canadian politics than the impact on the international system, which is. Really, what foreign policy should be uh, should be all about, and in that sense, the various uh, moves and initiatives that Canadian governments have taken seem to be, at least, uh, designed essentially to make Canadians feel good about themselves, rather than to have an actual impact uh, out there. Not a, not in every area, but there tends to be a, a tendency to want to. to to perform for Canadians rather than to perform for the world.
1: If I can just follow up, at The Hub, Kim, we have a biweekly video and podcast series with David Frum, the Canadian-born American-based commentator. And we regularly talk about this question of how to inject greater seriousness in Canadian foreign and defense policy thinking within political circles. One... Institutional change that he's suggested is that we prioritize the appointment of former defense and, and security officials into the Senate who could function in a way like the so-called Washington Vulcans to ensure that foreign and defense policy issues are higher on the policy agenda in Ottawa itself. It's, a, it's an excellent idea in the sense that it would
2: uh, assist at the margins, uh, and anything that moves, uh, uh, moves Canadians, uh, to think more about international affairs is a quote unquote good thing. The difficulty is essentially that the, the Senate continues to be a fairly marginal player in the broad element of Canadian politics. Uh, and, uh, one of the things that, uh, we always have to be concerned with is that uh foreign policy foreign and defense policy is all about the commitment of resources and in that sense the the senate has very little role to play what we really need are governments uh and MPs behind them and across from them in the house that are willing to understand the importance of spending uh uh tax dollars uh for the promotion of our national interests and in that sense uh the the difficulty is com- convincing governments and convincing MPs that in fact uh these expenditures are worthwhile um uh, and that is that is a difficulty uh, as we've seen with uh, uh, this government's recent cuts to the defence budget, at precisely the moment uh, when, uh, in order to be taken seriously, Canadians need to be upping their defence spending um, and spending far more smartly uh, than uh, than they have. But that's that's a, a, a that's a difficult thing to uh, to convince folks of.
0: Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab The Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership.
1: Act now. What would a foreign and defense policy more detached from the United States, look like what issues or priorities might anchor it?
2: It's exceedingly difficult to conceptualize a foreign policy that is uh, decoupled from that of the United States uh, in in any kind of international system, uh, whether it be the sort of the American world or the post the post American world. Uh, we are going to, uh, because of where we are, because of how uh, we trade, we are going to be deeply connected always to the United States. Uh, and in a sense, what we need to do is to uh, reflect um, that uh, the, our primary job as Canadians is to ensure that we have good relationships uh, with the United States because. The, po- the possibilities of constructing relations uh, with others to the exclusion of the US is just simply impossible, given where we are uh, physically uh, and economically.
1: A common debate in foreign policy circles is about whether to go broad or to focus in particular areas, like, say, the Southern Hemisphere or climate change or special forces or whatever. Uh, What's your view Kim how much of a Canadian foreign policy is about getting the priorities right and if so what might those priorities be
2: Well one of the priorities that that uh, no government in Ottawa can afford uh, to ignore uh, is the priority of our economic relationship with the United States which is one of the reasons why uh, who governs in Washington is of always powerful interest to uh, um, to Canada and Canadians, um, because uh, because of the huge dependence that we have on the United States, and that dependence isn't going away. Um, uh, you know, it, it remains a sort of Canadian uh, a Canadian dream to uh, reduce our economic dependence on the United States. Uh, but, over the last fifty sixty years uh what we've seen is just simply a continuation of that dependence, and that imposes perhaps the 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 primary priority, which is a very local priority it 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 basically focuses uh on North America rather than anywhere else. The difficulty of course, is that um uh global politics uh Won't ever allow you just simply, uh, to limit your scope, uh, to, uh, uh, to one's own locality. Uh, you mentioned climate change. That is going to be something, uh, that no Canadian government can avoid. Uh, and the difficulty for Canadian governments is essentially that, uh, who governs in Washington, uh, is going to have a powerful impact on the global element Uh, of uh, governance when it comes to climate change and its impact uh, on extreme weather events, for example. Because a Republican administration, an isolationist, a protectionist administration in Washington, uh, is going to make global governance on such global issues as uh, uh, climate change virtually impossible.
1: Let me follow up on that answer, Kim. One thing that I've thought a bit about, particularly in a world in which Washington is less reliable as an ally and partner, is the possibility of stronger subnational linkages between Canadian provinces and American states. Not only does it have the benefit of effectively circumventing D.C., but there are also greater symmetries in terms of population size, economic footprint, etc., And so, is one way to solve for dysfunctional Washington is to have Canadian provinces strengthening binational relationships with their neighboring states.
2: Absolutely. Uh, And and certainly, when Mr. Trump was first elected, uh, the uh, Trudeau government embraced what they called a sort of all hands on deck uh, approach to our relationship with the United States, which is essentially to look at all of the existing linkages across our border, and to work them to get around which, uh, what was uh, sort of rather rudely called uh, the the donut, um, uh, and uh, that donut was the hole uh, uh, that was the White House uh, during that period. There's a, there's a a real argument to be made that what we need to do is to strengthen our relationship. Uh, our not only our provincial relationship, but also our federal relationship with the various states uh, in the in the U.S. Uh, and one way to to do that is essentially uh, to expand our diplomatic footprint uh, in the United States. Uh, why don't we have, for example, uh, Canadian uh, plus provincial representation uh, in uh, many more? Uh, capitals, state capitals, uh, in the U.S. Um, and this is going to be particularly important when we look at the pattern of politics in the United States and looking at the number of red states now in the U.S. In other words, states that are governed by Republican, uh, governors, uh, and Republican, uh, state legislatures and those states are going to be very much more trumpy uh than in the past and that's going to pose a problem uh in in all sorts of ways and we need to uh try at least um to uh, to reach out uh and and establish relations with both blue and red states uh in the US in the years ahead
1: if washington is going to view geopolitics through a more national interest oriented and even transactional lens are there certain areas kim that canada can in effect fit within that framework by leaning into certain areas of, of shared interest i think for instance the focus on reshoring or other issues where our our interests are clearly aligned well i mean uh, the
2: the whole question of of Shifting uh, supply chains um, and uh, putting them back on shore, as long as the shore here refers to all of North America, uh, Mexico, the United States, and Canada, then great. But keep in mind that when Americans, uh, and in particular American Republicans, think of reshoring, um, all they think of is uh, uh, the United States itself. Um, and with very little interest uh, in uh, providing benefits uh, to uh, to uh, the other members of uh, the North american economic uh, unit. and so from that point of view it's it's absolutely the case uh, that we can try and look for things uh, that um, uh, that we share in common uh, with uh, the u s under Republican or Democratic administrations, so that, for example, one of the the uh, proposals uh, that has been uh, that been put forward is that we need to take more seriously um, the the problem that Americans face on their southern border. Uh, Canadians, you know, don't particularly care uh, about Central America and the problems of Central America that. Uh, combine to create serious difficulties for the U.S. Uh, in the South. Uh, we need to start thinking about um, uh, how we as Canadians might contribute to uh, the uh, the betterment, the amelioration uh, of the situation on the southern border of the of the United States. We don't, we're not used to thinking in those terms, but but if in fact Uh, we want to look for areas of common interest, that would be one. A second possibility is um, uh, looking at uh, uh, combined uh, shared interests uh, in the defense area. And here, we have to be prepared for some fairly heavy-handed pressure um, from a Republican administration
1: to spend more on defense uh, than we do. The North looms large in the book. Talk about how these potential political developments in the United States may influence the geopolitics of the North, and what are the consequences for Canadian policymaking?
2: Well, one of the one of the things that uh, Canadians have, generally speaking, uh, ignored uh, is uh, is our Arctic uh, uh, approaches. Um, essentially, we've taken for granted. Uh, the, uh, uh, the North in a way that uh, we're simply not going to be able to uh, in the decades ahead. Uh, and indeed, in the years ahead, as, as climate change uh, changes the nature of ice cover uh, in our northern waters, uh, we're going to have to face um, the, uh, the possibility um, of Chinese and of Russian uh, enthusiasms in the Arctic. Uh, that we've never had to worry about in the past. And the Americans, the Americans, regardless of who the administration is in Washington, the Americans are, are are also going to be, uh, interested, more interested in the Arctic than before. Um, I think that, that one of the, the, the problems of the Arctic is essentially that without the Americans there, uh, in a multilateral way, uh, global governance in the Arctic is going to be significantly more difficult. Uh, in the the post-Cold War era, with the uh with American enthusiasm, uh Canada, the United States, and uh the European uh Nordic countries uh managed to cooperate fairly well with uh with uh Arctic management and back in the day when uh the russians were in a more cooperative mood than they have been for the last 20 years um arctic management looked um uh looked interesting now with the the russians deeply opposed uh to the west uh and with the americans uh, uh quite possibly wanting to remove themselves from any kind of multilateral governance of the Arctic, that becomes more problematic for Canada. A
1: penultimate question. We're speaking today on October 17th, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the impending war in Gaza. What should Canada be doing now, Kim? How can we make a useful contribution to the situation? That is
2: the, the key way to ask the question. What we... Whenever we ask a foreign policy question, we should always ask, what can we bring to the table? Um, what can, what kind of contribution can we make? And the difficulty here is that until we have something very concrete that we can put on the table, um, things that, that we are able to actually bring, uh, uh, to bear, then you know it's not really much point in asking um what what we should do uh because what we need essentially to do uh is to have have very concrete uh, things put out there uh we can talk about and and the the government has been doing a good job of, of trying to repatriate canadians um from uh, from the affected areas but until we're willing to sort of step up and say here is what we as Canadians are prepared to put on the table, uh, and and in significant numbers, um, then then it's going to be in a sense uh, uh, more performance than anything else. What could we put on the table? Uh, essentially, what we would have to do uh, is to spend exceedingly large sums of money, um, or to in, uh, try and and uh use those expenditures with others to try and and engage in in some kind of of uh, of uh, impact
1: in the area and that's a good segue to my final question i interpret the book in as something of a wake up call uh to canadian policymakers and the canadian public itself that the world is changing in various ways that are not in the country's interest and we need a renewed Focus, including um, the dedication of resources to a more robust of uh, Canadian foreign and defense policy. Why don't you just wrap up with a kind of message to policymakers listening about what you think needs to happen to ensure that Canada is able to meet the moment? Well, I must admit, uh, the the
2: the book the book tries to uh, raise the issue. Um, But it it kind of steps away uh, from uh, any kind of uh, serious concrete proposals on policy areas. Instead, what it does is to say what we really need in this country uh, is a conversation, a conversation that would involve Canadians about international relations.
1: That sounds like precisely the kind of conversation that the country needs to have. And I'm grateful to have had this conversation with you. The book is Canada Alone, Navigating the Post-American World. Kim Nossel, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues brought to you by the Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.